Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Procht. Dr. Proke is both an MD and a PhD. He spends some of his time putting patients under anesthesia for things like surgery, and his lab studies how the nervous system creates behavior and enters altered states of consciousness like sleep and anesthesia, and how the dynamics of the brain actually give rise to these changes in brain state. And so I talked with Dr. Proct about brain states. What are they? How do neuroscientists define and measure them? We talked about things like sleep, non-REM sleep versus REM sleep. We talked about some of the neuromodulators and some of the things in the brain that give rise to these different brain states and how the brain switches between them. We talked about anesthesia, what it is, whether or not it resembles or doesn't resemble in certain ways sleep. We talked about various anesthetics, everything from propofol, which I believe was actually the drug that Michael Jackson overdosed on a number of years ago. We talked about ketamine. We talked about other drugs, including anesthetics and dissociatives, what they're doing in the brain, what the brain looks like when people are under the influence of these drugs. And we talked about things like coma and vegetative states and what the brain looks like when someone is in a coma or in a vegetative state. We even talked about the uh, old case of Terry Schiavo, which was in the news years and years ago now that caused a lot of controversy about, you know, how do we actually know whether or not someone is having conscious experiences when they're in altered states like coma or vegetative states or even anesthesia? How do we know that there aren't experiences there that they simply can't remember versus the complete absence of conscious experience at all? And so we got into to all sorts of questions around that. We talked about the phenomenon of using sleeping pills like Ambien to wake people up from vegetative states and what we know or don't know about what's going on there. And we talked about some recent basic research that his lab and his collaborators have done looking at ketamine, uh, giving ketamine to mice and actually imaging and looking at what's going on in the brain when animals are under the influence of something like ketamine and how ketamine actually differs from various other anesthetics in terms of what it's actually doing in the brain. And so we got into questions around dissociative states and psychedelics and the extent to which these experiences uh, may be necessary or important for the therapeutic benefits that some of these drugs seem to have. And at the end, we talked a little bit about questions around AI, including the new OpenAI tool ChatGPT and the Turing test. So if you're interest, interested in the brain and consciousness and how different brain states and different dynamics that the brain exhibits are related to different conscious states and what that means, this will be a very interesting episode for you. We covered a lot of interesting subjects and I had a lot of fun with this one. As always, if you enjoy the content of the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening. Be sure to check out the link in the episode description, which will take you to mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll find all my podcast content there, as well as some of my writing and links that will let you know how you can help support the podcast further. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
immunity is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Alex Proct. Right. So, um, well, my life is a little bit schizophrenic in that uh, I spend uh, about a couple of days a week taking care of patients in the hospital. I'm an anesthesiologist, so I'm there to get them through various surgeries. And uh, when I go to the lab, well, I, I work on anesthetics, and I've started working on anesthetics when I started my own lab, but really I am a neurophysiologist. That is my background. I did my PhD studying uh, nervous systems of invertebrates. And uh, specifically, I was very interested in how nervous systems generate patterns of activity. So in invertebrates and in slugs specifically, there are very many fewer neurons than in the brain of a mouse or, or human, certainly. So there was still a glimmer of hope that we can understand how these networks work. And in fact, we know a fair bit about them, but it's still far from being understood. Uh, but when I started my own lab, I figured, well, there should be some kind of a connection between what I do in the lab and what I do clinically. So I worked a fair bit on neurophysiology, meaning studying electrical signals in the brains of things like mice. I worked on um, data from primates. I don't really do primate experiments myself. And now as of late, uh, humans, and try to understand how these more complicated brains produce different activity patterns and how this abilities change when you change the state of consciousness, for instance. And we're awake and conscious as we are now, as opposed to, for instance, how we are under general anesthesia, because the brain is essentially always active, and it's the character of this activity that really sort of distinguishes between being awake in a normal state and being maybe asleep, maybe anesthetized, maybe in this weird ketamine state, not sure exactly what to call that, but it's called an anesthetic, but it's quite, quite different from the other steps. So that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, so you're an MD, you're an anesthesiologist, you're, you're putting people under part of the yeah. week and then your lab, you're studying brain dynamics and brain states, broadly speaking, I guess. That's right. So that's kind of, that's right. That's, that's very fair. So my, uh, I did a fair amount of work on anesthetics, but my interests in, in brain dynamics are broader than that. So for instance, one of the things that we're, so just getting into is learning and memory and things of that nature. So quite generally, you know, when we record uh, from uh, the brain, we, we see some signals that fluctuate in time and they're different in different parts of the brain. So I'm interested in how that, how those patterns emerge and what those patterns can tell us about how our brains process information, respond to stimuli in the outside world, things like that. And when we talk about brain states, you know, obviously when you're awake versus sleeping versus 
under the influence of an anesthetic, the brain is doing very different things. And that's why, you know, your behavior and your experience is different. But, you know, what exactly, let's define what a brain state is to a neuroscientist for people. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, the extent to which brain states, you know, are they, do they display smooth variation? Are there just sort of subtle, gradual changes from one state to, to another? Or, you know, to what extent is it true that there are sort of discrete, fast switches that happen? Right. So first of all, it's an excellent question. And I'm going to, before I say what I know about this, I'm going to say, I don't know. And I don't think anybody really knows what constitutes an adequate description of the state of a brain. Uh, I'm going to take a step back first and say, well, what is a state of anything, right? Uh, How do you define that? Uh, Well, well, say for instance, you were interested in a relatively simple system like a pendulum. Uh, a state of a pendulum would be really the collection of all variables that you need to describe the pendulum. So for a pendulum, it would be something like its position and its velocity. But if I know these two things, and I know Newtonian mechanics, I can tell you what's going to happen to the pendulum next. I can also infer what has happened to the pendulum in the past. Right. So for the brain, ultimately, We'd like to know what are the salient variables that are sufficient to describe the state of the brain. So, for instance, we can do that reasonably well for a single neuron. So a single neuron has, you know, uh, ion channels and things of that nature that allow currents to flow across uh, cell membranes. And we know how these currents work. And we know how to combine these different currents into a reasonable model over a single cell and that was pioneered by you know Hodgkin and Huxley in the 50s and, and that kind of stuff. So in principle, in principle, well if I knew everything about every neuron, I could put it together into one giant picture of what a brain state is. But you know, and uh, some people like Henry Markram is doing that with the blue brain and uh, similar kinds of approaches. And well, maybe that's fine, but the problem is that uh, uh, this description is so huge; it's completely meaningless. You can't you can't look at a million variables and say anything about it. It's just just too much. So, when we colloquially speak of brain states, maybe we say, "Well, somebody is awake or somebody is asleep." And what we really mean, I think, when we say that, we say, "Well, behavior. What is this state? Is it?" A state of a brain in which, you know, if I asked you to do a thing for me, you'd be able to understand me and, you know, maybe agree to do the thing I'm asking you to do, as opposed to, say, a state of sleep where if I give you a relatively mild stimulus, you will probably not respond to me in, in, in any way. Now, you've asked me about uh, transitions between different states. So that's, that's also an interesting uh, thing. So... Transitions between these big, big states, like awake versus asleep, those tend to be fairly abrupt. And, you know, wh- why do I say that? You know, I've always this record from um, uh, the brain using EEG or something like that. And I will see that the character of EEG signals changes very quickly. So, for instance, if we're in slow wave sleep, the oscillations will be slow. And then very quickly they transition to sort of more awake-like, awake-like uh, EEG signatures. And we all know this, you know, every morning 
you know, when the alarm clock goes off, you know, right before it went off, you were asleep, maybe in a dream, and then alarm clock goes off, and you know, maybe you're a little bit drowsy, you're not really fully awake, alert, and you know, I myself need a cup of coffee to to feel that, but you're definitely something quite uh, abrupt happened. With anesthesia, interestingly enough, it also seems to be abrupt. So, for instance, it's not very uncommon for somebody to be at the end of surgery, right? The surgery itself is over, and maybe they're still breathing some relatively low concentration of anesthetic vapor or something like that. And if you leave them undisturbed, they appear to be, you know, asleep. Their eyes are closed. They're not really interacting with the world. And then, you know, you can tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, hey, Alex, uh, wake up. And, and they do, right? So there is an abrupt transition behaviorally. And there is also abrupt transitions in uh, uh, brain activity as well. So don't know if that's true for all anesthetics, but it has definitely been shown to be true for a number of different anesthetics. So yes, there appear to be abrupt transitions between different states. And, you know, what are the ways that a scientist would typically measure and quantify the brain state that an animal is in? What are the tools there? Right. So, um, right. So another very, very important question. And I think depending on who you would ask, uh, they would answer slightly differently. Right. And what I mean by that is that, well, the brain is this vastly complicated thing and we can't measure all the things about it. So we necessarily have to, you know, kind of remove ourselves a little bit from the nitty gritty of all the molecules, uh, how they're moving in every single cell. It, it would be just impossible, right? So different levels of abstraction. So for instance, if you talk to somebody who measures, say, firing of individual neurons, well, maybe they would say, well, uh, uh, you know, for instance, at every moment in time, uh, uh, I have a, every neuron that I've recorded that it's either firing or not. So you can think about it as sort of a, a binary kind of a code. You say, well, a vector or a collection of all of these zeros and ones constitutes the state of the brain at this one moment in time. Now, uh, that is if you're looking at, you know, individual neurons. Uh, but what if, for instance, you're looking at the level of EEG? You don't really see firing of individual neurons. You see fluctuations in the local field potential. So a reasonable way to define a state of the brain is to say, well, at what frequency are these oscillations occurring? So if you imagine that, you know, brain activity is sort of like uh, maybe like a musical chord where all different notes are played sort of more or less at the same time, you can say, well, what notes are being played and how relatively loud is one note to the other. Now you have some, some definition, you know. And just want to make it clear that, you know, these are not entirely ad hoc, but they're definitely incomplete, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe if you ask a functional MRI person, they would say, well, you know, I see uh, activity in this part of the brain, but not in that one and in this third one. So that maybe defines a state of the brain at that moment. So that's kind of... Yeah, there isn't a single agreed upon definition because we don't all study the brain in the same way. I see. So, so when you measure brain states, you can sort of measure and study these things at different levels. Some people 
stick electrodes into the brain and listen to individual neurons one at a time. Some people use something like EEG, where it's more like, you know, you're listening to the orchestra play and, and hearing the whole ensemble of music at once. Um, but the point is in different states, there's different patterns of activity going on. And you mentioned already that these states often abruptly change. And, you know, we, we've all had experience with this. You know, we've all, I think, had the experience of sitting on the couch and you're kind of tired, but then, you know, you sort of suddenly fall asleep and, you know, your head goes down and, it, you know, it just takes a second or two for that transition to really happen. And, you know, if you're lying down in a comfortable position, then you'll be asleep and stay asleep for some period of time. So the transitions are quick and then the states persist for some some length of time. What do we understand so far about how and why that happens at the level of neurons and circuits? Because I would imagine that a very different kind of circuit, a very different kind of dynamics would be responsible for an abrupt shift that leads to these stable changes versus something that was much more gradual and continuous. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So uh, maybe I can say a few words about why should there be abrupt changes anyways, you know, and uh, sort of the technical term for this would be multi-stability. And, uh, what, what do I mean by that? Well, um, um, how do I explain this? Well, for instance, let's just say we have two people on the seesaw, right, on the seesaw swing, right? And let's say the two people weigh about the same amount, and you start with a seesaw in a totally horizontal position, right? But that's not a very stable configuration of the seesaw because maybe a gust of wind or something like that pushes on one side of the seesaw and not on the other. And as soon as one person is just a little bit lower than the other person, well, they're going to go all the way down. They're going to go all the way down, and the other person is going to go all the way up, and that configuration is stable. That is, if I now perturb the system, it will return back to its original state, right? And you can imagine, well, now it's a kind of a strange seesaw maybe that, uh, uh, you know, is being shaken all the time, that sometimes one person would be down and sometimes the other person would be down. But once one person goes all the way down, they can attempt to stay there because the system is stabilizing and stable. So... Similar kind of phenomena happen in neurons, right? For instance, uh, you know, we all know, well, assuming many people who listen to this will know that neurons fire what's called an action potential, right? So usually if you put an electrode into a neuron, you will see that it is more negative than the outside world. And you can inject some current into this neuron, or maybe a neuron will receive input from some other neuron that will maybe make that voltage a little bit less negative. And when you cross a certain threshold, you get this giant spike, just giant voltage excursion, right? So if you play with the parameters of the currents a little bit, and we have found these kinds of cells in different kinds of brains, that maybe it won't just fire a brief voltage impulse, it will just stay at a different voltage level, right? And that just happens to be the consequence of how uh, different currents are arranged, right? So some currents, once they open, they stay open for a long time. Some currents, when they open, they only stay open briefly, right? So it determines how stable a thing is. Now, when we're talking about networks of neurons, uh, which is really kind of relevant for, say, waking up from sleep or waking up from anesthesia, we don't really uh, have a very sort of detailed mechanistic understanding, but you can imagine that 
say I have a bunch of neurons that all excite each other, right? So if one of them starts firing, it excites his neighbor, and the neighbor excites him back, and they're going to fire more and more and more and more. And then there's another group of neurons that also excite each other, but the two groups inhibit each other. This ends up being in a situation that is very similar to a seesaw. Once one population sort of wins a little bit, it starts winning more and more and more and more until the system sort of stabilizes. And then you know, maybe with noise or with input or with something else, uh, you can switch. But the situation where the two groups of neurons are exactly balanced is, is kind of unlikely. So, uh, right. And it turns out that uh, these ideas uh, of multi-stability, they're generic. Uh, so long as you have nonlinear interactions between components, you're almost guaranteed to have multiple stable solutions. And that is probably what we're seeing when we're seeing abrupt transitions between states. You go from one stable equilibrium to another. Now, the duration of how long you stay there is a very interesting question. For instance, you know, uh, since we were talking about sleep, you know, human sleep cycle that consists of slow wave and REM sleep where most of the occurs, it happens on a scale of an hour and a half. Of course, it's variable between people and depends on age and of course, all sorts of other things. But in a mouse, it's a couple of minutes, right? So there's a huge difference in how stable these different states are. And why should this be more stable in a human than in a mouse? Well, nobody really has a good idea. Although the, the state itself is similar. If you look at mouse EEG and human EEG during slow wave sleep, you would say, well, they're not identical, but they're, 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 they're close to each other. And so when we think about something like sleep, so it's not, it's not simply that we fall asleep and we're awake and we fall asleep when we're awake. When we're in the sleep state, broadly speaking, we're cycling through different states. There's slow wave sleep and different phases of non-REM sleep. There's REM sleep. So what's the significance of cycling through those different states? And to what extent does it matter what order they go in? So, right. So, okay. So that's another very good question. Um, well, uh, significance is sort of a loaded term. I mean, um, it turns out that I believe, right, I could be wrong about this, but I, I'm pretty sure that's true that all mammals have something that resembles slow-wave sleep and something that resembles uh, REM sleep. Now, uh, slow-wave sleep appears to be controlled by two kinds of forces. One of them is... Uh, circadian rhythm, right? So some animals like people, uh, we tend to sleep during the night. Some animals are nocturnal, they tend to sleep during the day, but most animals have some preference for when they sleep during the day. Uh, but another component of this is homeostasis. So the longer you stay awake, uh, the longer, the, the, the stronger the pressure to go to sleep. So if people experience this, so and, the, and these two forces can interact in complicated ways. If you, you know, pulled an all-nighter and you were dead tired at four in the morning, but now the sun is rising and all of a sudden, although you haven't slept, you kind of feel a little bit more awake, right? So you get conflicting uh, sort of uh, responses. Now, REM sleep is a fascinating thing. I don't know if anybody really knows that much about it, except for the fact that uh, you know, it seems that dreaming is very common in REM sleep. In fact, it was originally called paradoxical sleep. 
And that is because if you look at EEG or some other brain measures of activity during REM sleep, they're remarkably like wakefulness, right? So brain is quite, quite active. It doesn't exhibit these slow oscillations, um, right? So that's already an interesting thing because if you didn't know the person was asleep, you would, you know, you would conclude that this is an awake brain. Uh, uh, we're also paralyzed essentially during uh, REM sleep uh, except for eye movements, sometimes feet move and, and, and things like that. So, you know, uh, what is the significance of REM sleep? Uh, the, the only kinds of things that I know about are sort of, they go like this, what if I prevent you from sleeping? Well, lots of things go bad if I prevent you from sleeping. You know, your learning, your ability to pay attention uh, would be much worse. Uh, there are all sorts of ideas how sleep may be important for learning or consolidating memories that are formed during the day. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that that's, that's the case. But uh, and then some people say it has to do with energy balance and uh, that kind of business. Synaptic homeostasis, that's Julia Tanoni's sort of ideas about, about why sleep happens. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I think I need to yeah, no, I, I think that's interesting. Um, I'm wondering if, so for example, you know, and we don't know the answers to all of these things, obviously, but, you know, would the outcome of sleep, the physiological effects it's having be different if you could somehow change the order of REM and non-REM sleep? If you could get rid of the REM sleep or just the non-REM sleep or switch them around, does is that have any physiological importance? I didn't answer your question, but that's right. I remember there was something missing. So there are disorders, and I'm not like a real sleep uh, expert, uh, but I know of this one, uh, narcolepsy, right? So typically during normal sleep, uh, you know, you usually start out in slow-wave sleep, you proceed through different substages of slow-wave sleep, and only then end up in REM. Narcoleptics can go straight to from awake REM sleep. Well, uh, especially when it's accompanied by cataplexy, I mean, you can be walking around, and then suddenly drop into REM sleep. And as I mentioned, well, uh, you're, you're paralyzed. But when that happens, so you, you drop to the ground. That's, that's, that's quite unpleasant. There are people who like sleepwalk and things of that nature. But I don't, the, there, there have been experiments where you can deprive an animal, maybe for some of humans too, of uh, uh, REM sleep specifically, right? Uh, uh, because if you prevent somebody from sleeping, uh, you're going to prevent both non-REM and, and REM sleep, so uh, you can you can disrupt uh, REM sleep specifically, and I think you also get cognitive effects afterwards, some uh, difficulties with learning and things of that nature. And one of the uh, one of the things that I know is important, one of the variables that seems to be very important for defining and distinguishing these different brain states are the activity patterns of specific relatively small populations of neurons that release the major neuromodulators. So can you talk a little bit about what neuromodulators are and why they seem to be particularly important for defining brain states? Sure, sure. Um, okay, so that's obviously a very big field. Um, so, well, how do I start? Um, well, so, you know, people have observed this, um, you know, since maybe 20s or 30s that, uh, Different kinds of brain states, like awake or sleep, are associated with different patterns of oscillations observed in the EEG. 
And it's only in the 70s and 80s, uh, maybe 90s even, to begin to understand how these oscillations come about. And uh, they really come about from the interplay between the thalamus and the cortex. So the uh, thalamus, uh, what maybe most people know of the thalamus is that it transmits uh, sensory information to the cortex. And that's definitely a component of what the thalamus does. Other parts of the thalamus are thought to be involved more in control of these more sort of amorphous things like vigilance, attention, sleepiness, wakefulness, consciousness, things of that nature. But so thalamus talks to cortex, cortex talks to thalamus, talks to the thalamus. Now, uh, so part of it is the interaction between the different regions, and part of it is just about physical properties of uh, uh, the neurons that are involved. So, for instance, when we are in slow wave sleep or under anesthesia, it's sort of physiologically somewhat similar states. Uh, it's related to the seesaw analogy, thalamic neurons silence for a little bit and then they fire for a little bit, silence for a little bit, fire for a little bit, and that kind of process repeats, let's say, about once a second. And that is really related very closely to the slow waves that we observe in the EEG. And uh, this going up and down in discrete levels of voltage and, 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 and firing rates has to do with the kinds of currents that are expressed in these neurons. And this brings us to neuromodulators. So the thalamocortical system has these very interesting and rich dynamics, but it also receives inputs from these more ancient brainstem and uh, hypothalamic structures, both direct and indirect. And what these uh, ancient structures do is that they project very, very broadly. You know, a single neuron can go for very large swaths of the brain, and they release these chemicals that, you know, that that act on receptors on the cells, only unlike the sort of can canonical neurotransmitters that produce a little blip in the voltage, these things have longer lasting effects. They modulate neural activity through different kinds of mechanisms. And what this modulation does, and really the meaning of the word modulation, it sort of changes input-output properties of neurons, right? So now the same circuit is communicating between the thalamus, the cortex, cortex, and the thalamus, but the properties of the constituent neurons have changed. And as a result of this, uh, the circuit as a whole exhibits different dynamics. So what are these modulators? So for instance, norepinephrine is very important in, in this process. Acetylcholine is a sort of a classic culprit that that we know probably the most about in terms of this ability to modulate uh, uh, different brain rhythms. It, uh, it, it, it's mostly produced by a small group of cells in the pawns and it innovates thalamus to change uh, uh, the various currents in thalamic neurons that biases them to what exhibits in these slow oscillations or high frequency oscillations because of the amount of Now, REM sleep is a whole different business because the oscillations in REM sleep are uh, quite like uh, the waking state. So there are not so many neuromodulators that distinguish between uh, REM and, and wakefulness. And I, I'm embarrassed and I don't want to be wrong. I forgot which ones they are. And so you've already hinted at, at the answer, I think, but you know, when we look at these different brain states, REM versus non-REM, waking versus either of those, to what extent is sort of uh, 
every neuron in the brain doing something different in each state versus this population's active and becomes quiet. And then a separate population does the opposite thing. What is that? How do we think about that? So, um, well, we don't know very much about that, embarrassingly enough. You know, um, uh, the real sort of biophysically detailed work that was done by, uh, you know, Tiara Contreras, Mises Tiradia, and a whole bunch of other, other, other folks was one neuron. It's, it's very, very challenging experiments. You have to put a thin electrode inside a neuron. It has to be in the right place. And, you know, the neuron can't move because, you know, the brain with circulation and breathing moves a little bit, but these things are so very, very challenging to do. And it was one year into time, and that's how we know most of the neural basis of these different rhythms that the brain produces. Okay. Now, now there are very different methods uh, that people use, including things like microscopy to image. And this is a little bit indirect. You're not really measuring electrical activity of the brain, but maybe, maybe close enough. Uh, uh, so, but there is a very little understanding, I think, to what degree. Uh, the transitions between different brain states are synchronous. So across different neurons, whether they're all uh, have to be in the same state. In fact, it seems like they don't have to be. So there's really compelling work by Vlad Gazovsky and a number of other folks who say, well, certainly if you look at the EEG of a person, you can say, well, this person is asleep or they're awake. But if you start recording from inside the brain, you will see that some locations in the brain exhibit more sleep-like patterns, while other ones at the same time exhibit more awake-like patterns. Mm. And the reality is, and maybe I'm betraying my own sort of philosophy here, is that there is no such thing as a global state in the brain. Nobody in the brain knows about it. The brain is just a huge collection of neurons that interact with one another. The only thing that one neuron knows is who is exciting and inhibiting and modulating it, and who is it sending neurotransmitters to? You know, the, the global state in a very real sense is sort of an emergent process that, that has to do with interactions between many, many different parts. And what can happen is that you can have two different parts that are only weakly correlated with one another, but if you have many, many, many such weak correlations, you can get global states that appear globally correlated. Right. So that's at least my thinking about uh, the roles of different neural populations during transitions between sleep and wake. And so, you know, you spend a lot of time putting people and animals uh, under the influence of anesthetics when, you know, superficially, when you see someone who's been anesthetized, the, you know, behaviorally, it's like they're sleeping, right? They're not moving. They're not responding to sensation from the outside world. When you actually look at what's going on in the brain, does the anesthetized brain look like the sleeping brain or is it distinct somehow? It, so uh, it's just, well, uh, it's, it's complicated, right? Because, well, first of all, uh, it depends on which anesthetic we're talking about, right? So Anesthetics of the kind like propofol, which is very commonly used in cleanliness anesthetic, barbiturates, uh, they can, at certain concentrations, produce brain activity that resembles that in slow wave sleep and probably shares a lot of um, mechanistic sort of similarities with what's happening in sleep. But if you add a little bit more anesthetic, 
you would get patterns that are never observed in the something that you would observe in a coma. And in general, I think anesthesia in a, in a surgical sort of realm is much more similar to a coma than if it's to sleep. You know, uh, if it was like sleep, I wouldn't have a day job. You know, you could just take a nap and somebody can, you know, give you a new kidney or something like that. Right? So obviously it's a, it's a behaviorally, it's a different state. But yes, there are some similarities. And if you read some of the older literature, they usually feel interchangeable. So uh, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think they're completely different, but they're not exactly the same. Now, other anesthetics, for instance, like ketamine, don't look anything like sleep at all. Hmm. Right? If you give somebody uh, ketamine, you don't see suppression of metabolic rate. You don't see suppression of firing. You don't see slow waves. You know, it's very much looks like an OATG. And, you know, maybe if I'm allowed some sort of poetic license, maybe there is some kind of a parallel between what is happening in REM sleep and what is happening in the academy. Activated brain, vivid experiences, uh, um, like we have dream dreams, when we have dreams, and, uh, um, you know, uh, but unresponsiveness to the outside world. So there are, right, so... So maybe at this level, there's a similarity between ketamine and REM sleep, but mechanistically, we don't know if these are very similar states. So let's say, you know, someone has to go to the hospital and get surgery. They've got to get put under so that you have to give them an anesthetic. How does a physician decide which anesthetic to give someone? What's What are the variables that, that inform that decision? Right. So... Uh, well, you know, uh, there, there are not so many anesthetics, actually. So <clears throat> the choice is surprisingly simpler than one may think. Unlike, you know, maybe there are a hundred different diabetes medications now. So maybe not a hundred, but quite a few. As far as anesthetics are concerned, well, there haven't really been new anesthetics on the market since maybe 1970s. Hmm. Uh, True anesthetics. Uh, a lot of them have been developed a, a while ago. Now, anesthetics are at once sort of fantastic drugs, and that, like, you know, maybe if you have high blood pressure and you try a certain blood pressure medication, it may or may not work for you. But we can anesthetize everybody. Right? There is no person who cannot be anesthetized. So that that's a really good success story for anesthetics. On the other hand. They, uh, you know, they're kind of dangerous drugs in that, you know, over a pretty small concentration range, you can begin to see cardiovascular problems, respiratory problems, et cetera. And that's why, frankly, you know, anesthesiologists exist, right? You know, you have to have pretty special training in order to give these drugs in a way that is safe. And anesthesia in general is very safe, but not in the hands of people who, who are not specifically trained and a lot of the safety is uh, really due to technology that allows us to monitor patients very closely and dose drugs in a pretty precise way. So it's not, um, uh, you know, there, there are several choices that uh, 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 we sort of think about when we think about which anesthetic to do. Well, first of all, you have to determine if a person indeed needs to go all the way to sleep, for instance. You know, say, say you have a broken leg or something like that. Uh, well, you don't need to go to sleep to fix that. We can give you a spiral anesthetic or a nerve block or something like that. Some less invasive procedures can be done with sedation, but if you have to go to sleep, 
some of the concerns about choosing an anesthetics have more to do with their effects on uh, the heart and the circulatory system than they do on our ability to sort of anesthetize uh, a person, right? Uh, so for instance, ketamine in this case is an interesting example because uh, ketamine doesn't suppress respiration. So uh, most anesthetics depress respiratory breath. That's why, you know, usually when you're under general anesthesia, uh, they assist your breathing or control your breathing for you using a ventilator. But ketamine doesn't seem to do that. So for instance, you know, if you had to take a wounded soldier out of a battlefield, or maybe you're doing surgery in a place where you don't have a ventilator, like you know, a lot of third world countries, uh, frankly, don't have enough of that medical equipment. So then ketamine becomes a really favorable choice. In the first world, you know, when you have these sort of techniques routinely, so uh, I definitely have questions about ketamine in particular. But before we go there, you know, let's just pick one of the more commonly used anesthetics. And can you just talk about what one of the common ones is and then how it's actually working at the sort of cellular and, and, and pharmacology level? Sure. Uh, that's very simple. Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, well, so anesthetics in general, fall into two different classes. Intravenous anesthetics are something that we're giving to the IV and anesthetic papers. Um, right? So intravenous anesthetic, the, the only really one that is used, it probably has in 90% of the cases use it is propofol. Now, <clears throat> we do know some things about uh, propofol's mechanism of action. We know it potentiates um, inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter GABA, it can either potentiate the effect of GABA through the GABA A receptor or at high enough concentrations or replace GABA. But, but that's not its only target. Uh, it targets other ion channels um, in, in the nervous system. Uh, it also has effects outside of the brain as well. So, so we do know that if you mutate uh, GABA receptor in a very specific way in mice, you can decrease the potency. The drug don't completely eliminate it. You don't make somebody immune to propofol, but it takes more propofol to get that mouse under anesthesia. So that's as close as we come to a molecular mechanism. You know, uh, and people have studied where exactly on the GABA receptor binds. We know some details about that. These are, you know, anesthetics are very difficult drugs to study because um, uh, because precisely of the fact that they bind to so many different things that kind of. Lipophilic means they, they like being in fatty solutions like membranes of cells. So it's very complicated to, stu to study these drugs. And uh, propofol is probably, you know, as close as it comes to being known in double receptors are involved. There's another drug that is very specific, and that's called dexmedetomidine, or metatomidine, you know, as it's used in veterinary side of things. That drug is not really a full anesthetic. That is, I could not give you enough dexmedetomidine to uh, take you through surgery, but it's definitely a very good sedative. And that drug is quite specific to um, alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. And, you know, and I sort of alluded to earlier that uh, noradrenaline and adrenaline are neuromodulators that modulate things like sleep and wake and all that, and alpha-2 receptor 
that decreases the release of norepinephrine. At least that is our present understanding of the drug, but again, not a complete anesthetic. The anesthetic vapors, no clue. We know they bind to literally hundreds of thousands. Okay, hundreds. That, that's for certain. Hmm. Uh, and you know, uh, I don't know how much sort of how how intuitive this pharmacology told your listeners, but you know, like say I had to use a uh, sevoflurane, which happens to be one of the anesthetic vapors. So, roughly speaking, to anesthetize a young healthy person, it would take one to two percent sevoflurane. That means out of every hundred molecules of air that you breathe, you know, one or two will be sevoflurane, which is a huge concentration relative to, say, for instance, a biologic agent that is designed to very specifically go after very specific cancer. So that's millions of times more of CO4-in molecules. And when you have drugs that you need to give at such high concentrations, they bind to a whole percent. And it is very, very difficult to sort out which one of these binding interactions actually are relevant for anesthesia. And also, of course, these targets of these anesthetics are found throughout the system. So not only which receptor, but where, right? Nobody knows. It's been a puzzle for over 100 years. I see. So so anesthetics tend to bind multiple receptors, some of them oh, yes. many, many receptors. So that makes it very difficult to disentangle very specifically which interactions are responsible for the anesthesia. And I guess when you're looking for anesthetics or they were trying to develop anesthetics, the main criteria is does it knock someone out and not have too many negative side effects? So it's, it's really a behavioral definition for, for finding these things. Exactly. So uh, there are a couple of people working on new anesthetics, like making new molecules of anesthetics. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'm not a chemist, so I don't really want to say too much, but uh, it's usually based on existing anesthetic molecules. You say, well, you want, I want an anesthetic that's going to, you know, dissipate quicker. Well, so you, you can derivatize existing anesthetics and, and play around with their, their chemical structures to make something like this. And there are several drugs in development or in various stages of testing that try to do this, uh, but it's still based on the existing structures. You know, you can try to engineer some side effects out of um, these drugs, for instance. A less commonly used anesthetic is for retomidate, and the problem was that it caused adrenal suppression. So I know that, uh, well, somebody I know at uh, Mass General is uh, derivatized atomidate such that it doesn't do that. And, maybe it will become a more uh, prevalent anesthetic that is used clinically. So, but but no, no principally new anesthetics in a long time. Um, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned very briefly earlier the comatose state. Yes. And I imagine that there are many different ways someone can go into a coma. There's probably not just one part of the brain that needs to be damaged. But are there any... Um, are there any basic sort of learnings or principles there in terms of uh, which parts of the brain get damaged to put someone into a coma? And, and does that state, you know, to what extent does that state resemble something like slow wave sleep or an anesthetic state? Right. So it's a, so, well, maybe I'll go on a tangent and if you think I'm going too far, uh, you can stop me. Right. So it used to be for the longest time that if you sustain some devastating brain injury that um, impaired your consciousness in, in a very significant way, you would just die. Okay, it was, but that was that, and it's quite tragic. Nowadays, um, of course, uh, we have intensive care and we have ways of sustaining a patient alive 
even in a state where they're completely unresponsive to anything. And that ability changed our understanding of sort of depressed states of consciousness. So coma uh, is a transient state. You don't stay in coma forever. Coma may ensue after a devastating injury. Now, what kind of injury? So sometimes it is, for instance, say somebody had a cardiac arrest and there was just no blood flow to the brain. Right? Uh, so very diffuse injury. There are some specific injuries that can cause that. Those tend to be mostly in the brainstem. Uh, lesions of the brainstem can produce profoundly depressed consciousness. But usually some thalamic lesions, right? Uh, 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 but um, what was I was going to say that typically if a person survives the original insult, they will snap out of coma. And then it becomes a very sort of complex landscape. And it's actually, in my mind, I think it's related to some of the challenges with anesthesia, is that there is this evolving terminology and sort of consciousness. There is something called a vegetative state. And a vegetative state means you're not in a coma. You're, you're like, if you looked at a person uh, in a coma, look, they would be unresponsive to anything. They would not have sleep-wake cycles. Their EEG would have this highly abnormal burst suppression pattern, you know, where all the neurons are quiet for several seconds, and then everybody fires, and then they're all quiet again. So kind of like a deep anesthesia, right? But a uh, vegetative uh, state person can actually have parts of the day when it sort of looks more awake and then at night maybe they look like they're having sleep, right? So there's some circadian rhythm and things of that nature, but they're not interacting. You know, you, you can try to examine them and, you know, try to ask them to do things or respond to anything. Besides primitive reflex, they don't do that much more. Um, but then there's another category, which is called minimally conscious state. And people in minimally conscious state appear to sometimes, on some occasions, exhibit some interactions, right? Uh, there is maybe a family member was at the bedside and said, no, 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 I swear I pulled their name and they squeeze my hand or something like that, right? But it's very difficult to sort of catch them in the act, right? You know, to be sure, to distinguish between a vegetative state, which by definition lacks any sort of consciousness, and a minimally conscious state where the pieces believe that they're episodic moments of consciousness. And the most remarkable thing is that we used to believe that once this depressed state of consciousness is established, well, that's it, right? The explanation was, well, a certain part of the brain has died, neurons don't really regenerate, so you will be stuck in this state forever. But that turns out to be not the case. There have been uh, several instances where people after years wake up. And there have been instances where, uh, and it's very, very bizarre, um, that uh, some people, uh, when they're given uh, either benzodiazepines or Ambien, wake up, right? Although they've been in a minimally conscious state for a long time, they've not really been awoken, but they can be awoken by uh, Zopinum. There have also been cases of deep brain stimulations, uh, stimulators implanted into thalamus that cause, you know, I don't want to create an impression that, oh, they wake up and they're just like you and I, totally normal, you know, 
uh, teaching a calculus course in, in college. No, but huge difference in that they're able to do basic things for themselves, they eat, they're able to recognize their family members. So huge improvement. So, so it doesn't seem to be an adequate explanation that just a lesion in a particular part of the brain is sufficient to explain it because there are people who have the lesions who can nevertheless be perturbed into a state of wakefulness. So I guess maybe what I'm saying is that maybe that is a situation more similar to my seesaw analogy, that the brain is just stuck in a particular state. It's too stable, right? It's not able to explore other sort of possible states. And maybe given the right perturbation, be that through a deep brain stimulator or through some drug or whatever else, that maybe you can kick the brain out of that so depressed consciousness state, and maybe at least in some cases, a full-on state of more consciousness. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's very, very difficult to diagnose these disorders of consciousness. And uh, at least according to published literature, mistakes are very, very, very common. And in fact, the same kind of problem happens in anesthesia, luckily a lot more infrequently. But it's kind of like a puzzle, like, how do I know that you are unconscious, right? Uh, for instance, usually during surgery, we give people paralytics, agents that prevent you from moving. So I can't rely on you moving or indicating to me somehow, hey, I'm awake. Uh, you know, so how do we decide, right? Uh, luckily for normal, regular anesthetics, I'm not talking about emergency surgeries or something like that, no, the incidence of being awake is quite, quite low. It's maybe one in 10,000 to one in 1,000. Quite low. Not, not perfect, but not, not so bad. Uh, but it's very difficult to determine when somebody is going to be awake. There are also these highly abnormal states where, um, and these experiments have been done since the 70s and recently have been sort of uh, recapitulated is that you inflate a tourniquet on the arm, say, of a patient before you give them a paralytic agent. So then, for instance, their hand is not paralyzed, right? So you can then ask them, say, like, hey, Alex, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And remarkably, a lot of people do that, right? We're talking you know, maybe 10% of people can do that. So, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude difference. Um, and then you talk to them after surgery, they have no recollection of this mm. whatsoever, right? As far as they were concerned, they were completely unconscious. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to sort of understand what is that thing. So maybe, maybe, conjecture, maybe, uh, depending on the specific person and the state of anesthesia, et cetera, maybe you can produce these kinds of partial states of consciousness, like maybe a vegetative or maybe a minimally conscious state. But uh, anesthetics also anesthetics, so you you know remember what what happened to you, right? Uh, uh, and it's so hard to tell if somebody is actually having a conscious experience. You know, how do we know? Yeah, I mean that sounds like a, a very difficult puzzle, yeah. and that was something I was curious about, which is you know how exactly do we know whether or not someone's having any sort of conscious experience? Because it would seem to me that a, that a key distinction there is. You know, if someone's completely unresponsive in certain ways and they re don't report that they had any experiences when they were under the influence of anesthesia or when you wake them up from deep sleep, for example, how do we distinguish between the absence of conscious experience and 
simply being in a state where the memories can't be encoded? Well, I don't, I don't think you can. And that's the whole problem. For instance, I personally think that dreams are very interesting. I have them. I want to know why I have them. I want to understand how I have them. But I have no idea how you would study it. So some people apparently can be trained to report when they're having a dream. I don't know if anybody can be trained. Um, you know, I don't know what kind of training it is. You know, it, 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 it's, 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 it's impossible to say. And the same kind of thing applies to, say, animal research, right? Well, how do I know that mice have anything resembling conscious experience in the first place? I know they, they can be awake and they can run around. And, uh, and now I give them anesthesia and now they don't do that. Okay, so that's reasonable. But when you get to, say, like a drug like ketamine or nitrous oxide or psychedelics or something like that, well, how do I know that they have that altered experience? It's, it's, it's impossible. I think it's one of those, you know, uh, kind of uh, conundra that, you know, I certainly don't. So the other thing that you said was interesting is that comas, technically speaking, comas are transitory states. They don't last forever. And so I guess when we when you hear about someone in the news who's been in a coma for years, what that really means, I, I would suppose, is that they're in a coma for some period of time, and then they transition to having this vegetative state where the brain is now cycling through what looks like waking and sleep and things like that. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And it can be very confusing and challenging, you know, more obviously for the patient, but also for the family members. And, you know, I don't know, you may have heard or remember, remember there was this whole Terry Schiavo uh, story. Yes, yes. Woman, and I forget exactly what happened to her, but there was this huge controversy about, uh, like, she was there, 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 right? Because... People who thought uh, that uh, uh, she was there said, well, you know, she opens her eyes. How can she be in a coma when her eyes are open, right? But, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I'm not going to decide anything about Terry Shiro, but that alone is not really enough to, to make any inferences about what is happening. And so I think it's a huge challenge. Uh, so I don't know if you know about this experiment. Uh, so this was uh, kind of an incredible thing. Um, uh, it was done by Adrian Owen, where he took some patients uh, who were deemed to be in a vegetative state. And a vegetative state means no experience, definition. And he put them into the fMRI machine, and he said, uh, well, imagine you're playing tennis, or imagine you're walking through your house. And what he has observed is that in a subset of these patients, you would get activation of parts of the brain that are similar to those that uh, would happen in you and I, if I asked you to imagine things, right? And then they started examining these patients more carefully, and then they realized that, well, no, they actually do have at least a bizarre conscious experience and can interact and things like that. So in anesthesia and, you know, in practice, in, in neurology, and we're dealing with these very complicated cases where you can't really rely on behavior, right? You can't rely on report. Uh, you, it's of great interest to try to develop some kind of measure of brain activity that would tell you, is somebody awake? Is, are they having, are they at least 
capable of having some sort of experience. So that's a really interesting problem, which I think, you know, if you could solve that problem, which we, you know, making some headways, different people are, not just us, but uh, different people, but, uh, you know, if you could at least say something intelligent about that question, maybe you can begin to hack into, well, consciousness and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, because of this fundamental problem with, you know, the, the question of, you know, if someone is in deep sleep or under anesthesia or in a coma or vegetative state, we can't distinguish between the absence of conscious experience and the absence of the ability to encode that experience in memory so they can tell us about it later. Or report it. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. So, so we don't know if they can't report it because they can't remember it or because they can't report it because there was nothing there to report. Yeah. Now, that brings me to the question of, you know, so that means, you know, even for a normal healthy person, when I go to sleep every night, if you wake me up from deep sleep, it's entirely possible that there is some kind of conscious experience there. I just can't remember it when I wake up. So um, how do we think about the null hypothesis? Should the null hypothesis be that conscious experience is there or that it, that it's not there? Or, or it's, we can't we can't resolve that that question. I think, you know, OK, so. I think formally, if you, you know, like if you ask like the basic scientist in me and say, do I know? If you say, I want you to tell me with 100% certainty that, you know, there is no experience under anesthesia of any kind. It's like nothing to be a person under anesthesia. I can't say. I don't, I don't know how I would know that. I don't know what evidence I can provide to say that with certainty. Now, I think it, you know, but if I had to make a bet, you know what I mean? This is a lot much less stringent requirement. If I say, okay, you know, I'm betting on the possibility that there is no consciousness. I think that's fairly likely. You know, it's not a slam dunk. It's not 100% certainty, but, you know, I have myself been under general anesthesia. I have no, no knowledge of it. It was like nothing. Uh, you know, I've put thousands of patients in a state of general anesthesia and it's like nothing. So, you know, but it, it could be some altered state of consciousness that just doesn't leave a mark. You know, we all know that, you know, we, you wake up in the morning and you have this really vivid dream and maybe for the next couple of minutes you're kind of thinking about the dream and you have memory of it, but by the time you made your morning cup of coffee, it's kind of gone. Right, and some of them you remember, but a lot of them are gone. So, our brains are definitely capable of producing very vivid experiences that can fade. You know, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I think. Yeah, I know it's not a very hopeful state of affairs, but yeah, I mean. Uh, yeah, I think the, the answer really is unknowable. Um, it seems. Uh, what's kind of funny about about what you just said is, um, you know, if you if you read the literature on meditation and you listen to what very 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 highly practiced meditators say, they they often say things like, um, you know, I don't have a direct quote, but they say things like, "The deepest states of meditation leave no mark on consciousness," and you know, it's akin to saying that there is conscious experience in the absence of the ability to encode it in memory. That's right. And, and I don't know this literature very well, but I do know that some like expert meditators, they, when they enter this kind of state, they, their brain activity resembles that of sleep. They're not asleep, but they can kind of evoke that state. So, you know, 
But that's also really hard to study. You know, how do you define an expert meditator? You, you know, like, are they just special humans that have this superpower that, you know, I, for instance, don't seem to have? Or can anybody attain this power by practicing a lot? You know, so if you, if you, you know, it could be a very interesting uh, thing to study, you know, what happens in the states of trance and meditation, uh, but it's very challenging, very, very challenging. And you mentioned briefly earlier that there is this phenomenon and, you know, this has been in the news before and, and, and people have talked about it because it is so fascinating. The phenomenon where you have, have someone in a vegetative state potentially for a very long time. And then paradoxically, you give them a sleeping pill like Ambien and That's they right. effectively wake right up. So what is going on there? Do we, do we have any clue what's happening there and how, how reliable is that phenomenon? So um, there are, um, you know, it's very, very difficult to do such studies. Uh, the person who knows the most about this is Nico Schiff at Cornell, who's a neurologist who specializes in coma and uh, sort of di- disorders of consciousness. So, uh, you know, because these patients are sort of scattered all over the country, all over the world, uh, you know, so it's, it's, and everybody's a little bit different, you know, it's not, you can't say, oh, I only want to take people with this particular uh, lesion and see if they, uh, you know, if they can be aroused by ambient. Uh, but they did identify an EEG phenotype that predicted that people would respond to it. So I think it's way, way, way pre-mechanistic. We're just kind of groping our way to to you know through the dark you know tunnel we're trying things because well you know if you're that patient i, I think you'd, you'd want people who are just willing to try a thing you know and then see if it could work but i don't think there was any robust understanding why that is what you do see is is remarkable that you do see is changing whole brain metabolism changing brain activity you you know uh, behaviorally, it's it's a huge, huge difference, right? But, but you know, how we generalize from a very complex, heterogeneous population of patients, some of whom respond, some of them don't. So with, with Ambien, there have been a number of cases. I believe there have been a couple of cases with benzodiazepines as well, hmm. like anxiolytic like drugs like Midazolam you know, and Valium and things of that nature. Um, it's also... Very interesting that, uh, you know, once they get the drug, you know, they're, they're in this more conscious state. And then when the drug fades, they snap back into their usual state. And I don't know if they know that they can be woken up by Ambien. Like if you are, say, I, I've given this person Ambien on Monday, and, you know, maybe they were kind of conscious for a couple of hours, and you can interact with them. And then you come back on a Tuesday and say, hey, remember what we did on Monday? I'm not sure that they do, right? I, I don't know. I don't know if enough is known about that. So it could be kind of similar to this phenomenon of having an experience, clearly, because you're interacting with a person. There is no denying that. So, uh, uh, but no, no trace of it, or little trace of it. How, does, how do sleeping pills like Ambien actually work? Do we know how that happens? They are also GABA-A receptor agonists. You know, uh, uh, they have, uh, I believe, Ambien, you know, GABA receptors are hugely complicated, right? They, you know, they're made up of five different proteins that have to come together. 
each one of these five proteins comes in several varieties and it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle when you are, uh, assemble these uh, receptors. But in any case, I do believe zolpidium is, is more specific to one of the subtypes of GABA-A receptor, but it is in many ways similar to benzodiazepines, you know, and it was sort of marketed as a replacement for benzodiazepines, which in turn were replacement for barbiturates, you know, so, uh, but but the, at a global scale, they have a similar mechanism. Yeah, but, you know, GABA receptors are everywhere, you know, everywhere, they're in the cortex, they're in the tongue, they're in the brainstem, they're in the so, so just knowing, you know, and I think in general, just knowing what receptor a drug works on doesn't necessarily tell you that much about what it does to the brain. The net effect of the drug is sort of filtered and percolated through these vastly complex networks. At least that's, maybe that's my bias. I do want to start asking about ketamine a little more. So ketamine is super famous um, recently for its use as a potential antidepressant. Obviously, it has a history of use as an anesthetic. It has you know very different effects depending on the dose that you use it in. And you mentioned earlier that you know on the one hand, it can be used as an anesthetic, but on the other hand, it seems to be very different in terms of the effects it has from many other anesthetics. So what are we starting to learn about what kind of brain states are induced by ketamine and how they're similar and different to other anesthetics? Yeah, sure. So let me say a couple of words about that, right? Um, and I, I want to maybe add a little bit more nuance to a different concentration business. You know, um, it's definitely been sort of talked about in, in this context, but I'm not so sure that's quite right. There's something to that, but I don't know if it's, uh, uh, quite as strong as you know people say it is. So you know what am I trying to accomplish when I'm uh, giving an anesthetic for somebody? I'm trying to make sure that the person is comfortable. They don't have any negative experience of the procedure, and um, they're not moving around so much. They're not responding to what the surgeon is trying to do. And I can most definitely accomplish that with ketamine. Now, what happens? What's interesting is what if you ask the person afterwards and you say, okay, what was it like? And if you ask a person who had a regular general anesthetic, they would say, what are you even talking about? Like, I remember coming into the operating room and that's it. I don't remember anything else. As far as I'm concerned, nothing. If you talk to a person who received an anesthetic dose of ketamine, you will not get that story. You will get just phantasmagorical stories of just... You name it, you know, people have really, really vivid visions and experiences on ketamine that are so kind of durable that they, they don't know what is happening in the outside world. And that is why it's called a dissociative anesthetic. Mm. So, I see. So you're, you're dissociated from your incoming sensory signals into your eyes and ears and everything else, but you're having an experience, which is just sort of uncorrelated and uncoupled from that. That's correct. That's correct. That's exactly right. Right. So if all I'm, you know, you know, what I'm trying to say, you know, uh, if I'm giving you an anesthetic, I'm giving it to you for surgery. And so long as you don't have a negative reaction to surgery, I think I've done my job. But, you know, with these higher doses of ketamine, 
you can also get somebody who is just, you know, out of their minds. They're delirious. Uh, you cannot talk them down. They are in the middle of this dissociated state, you know. So it is quite, quite uncommon in modern medicine, and again, in the first world. But I think it's true. I mean, when I've done some anesthesia in the third world, you don't want to give ketamine alone just because it's kind of unpredictable. You know, you might get somebody completely out of their mind, uh, agitated, confused. They can hurt themselves because they're, you know, they're not really there. You know, so typically when ketamine is used in surgical concentrations in uh, medicine, it is given in combination with other drugs. So very commonly with benzodiazepines. Sometimes it's given as a component of general anesthesia. And what happens is when you combine two drugs, you get something completely different. You don't get, you don't get as much of this dissociated state, or you get more of an amnestic state, or you can get more of a sleeping state. You know, the combination of two drugs when they interact with the brain, which is this complex nonlinear thing, it's not one plus two. It's something else completely, right? So, so I'm not so sure that there is a fundamental difference between you know, a little bit of caffeine and a lot of things. So, for instance, hmm. people who receive antidepressant doses of caffeine, they also have a dissociative experience. It's just less intense. You, know, hmm. you could talk to them, and you, for, for most people, it is pleasant, you know, uh, but you say, uh, well, do you feel normal? And you say, no, no, I don't feel normal. I, I feel like I'm floating. I, I can see stuff just doesn't look or sound quite the same. So, they, they, they will talk to you. They, they are connected, but but their experience of the world is different, right? And it is, you know, and then you, you add more and it becomes more intense and so you go into a state of anesthesia. So um, doses that are used by psychiatrists and, uh, you know, pain physicians, something like addiction medicine has all of these potentially interesting implications. They're sub-anesthetic, but they still elicit to a degree, this dissociates. And, and you probably know this, there is a big debate to what degree the state is actually relevant for treatment. But this is the kind of questions that people ask about psychedelics, you know, psilocybin, mm-hmm. LSD, all of these kinds of drugs seem to be beneficial for a number of psychiatric conditions, you know, and maybe, you know, Maybe it is true that it's the, the dissociated psychedelic experience, whatever it is, uh, plays a role in that. It's really hard to say. It's really hard to say. Uh, because uh, a lot of the drugs, uh, people have derivatized drugs like uh, psilocybin, psilocybin, LSD for certain, LSD definitely has been zero. Oh no, it wasn't psilocybin, it was LSD and ibogaine. They're both been sort of chemically modified to engineer out the psychedelic effects. But the reality is these drugs have only been tested in animals. Right. So do know that animals don't exhibit the canonical behavior if they're associated with psychedelic drugs. And these drugs are still appear to be beneficial for whatever the behavioral manifestations of depression are in mice. But at least as far as I know, no human is taking these drugs. So we don't actually for, for sure know that Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that remains an, a very interesting and open question. But yeah, but the point I want to make is that people who are getting depression or pain or addiction treatment with ketamine, 
do experience, a lot of them at least experience the associated effects of religious festivals. I see. So, so when people say uh, ketamine used as an antidepressant is given at a sub-threshold dose, that's maybe not quite right. It's not, it's not like some threshold is reached and then you have a dissociative psychoactive experience. It's just, it's a lower dose. And so that experience is much less intense. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, this is in psychiatric literature. If you, if you read the, the papers by psychiatrists who do this, they would freely acknowledge this. And it is a fairly low dose in that, you know, you, you know, you know, if I was receiving currently a sub anesthetic ketamine, you and I could continue having a conversation, and maybe I wouldn't strike you as somebody who is, uh, you know, completely altered. But if you ask me, like, well, you don't know, and uh, we have given ketamine sub anesthetic doses to volunteers, and just about everybody says, yeah, it was weird, it was strange. Most people don't think negatively of it, and there's quite a bit of variability between people, but definitely you're getting some. It, it, you wouldn't be able to do a placebo-controlled trial, put it this way. <laughs> the person would know that they're getting ketamine. Yeah, yeah. And what are we learning from basic research in terms of what's going on in the brain when you when you apply ketamine? What, you know, We can image the brain or record from the brain. People have started to do experiments in animals where they give ketamine and, and look and see what's happening. What sorts of uh, things are we starting to see there? So, right. So, well, uh, maybe before I say that, I will say a thing that at least to me, because I'm interested in dynamics and things like that, that is... I think very, very important is that, you know, say you were trying to treat some psychiatric condition like depression or something like that, right? The traditional model says, well, we're going to give you a drug that's going to correct some neuromodulator imbalance and because depression is really some imbalance of chemicals in the brain, maybe that's true. But if you think about what is the most effective treatment for depression, it's ECT, right? People who are resistant to all drugs, electroconvulsive therapy. And what is that? You know, we induce a seizure, right? Right. So literally just, shocking the brain. Yeah, exactly. Like defibrillating the heart, right? We do it under anesthesia. It's not like one who like a cuckoo's nest. You know, it's it's very much civilized, but you know, but that's what we're doing. We're inducing a seizure. So and the effects of that seizure last a long time. Okay? Mm. So it's as if we kind of, again, perturb the brain from one state to the other. So, so, so to use your, your teeter-totter analogy, if the brain is stuck on one side, you're just right. sort of throwing in a big, a big push That's to try right. and get it to flip the other way. That's right. For instance, in animal models, and again, I shouldn't, you shouldn't put a lot of faith in animal models of psychiatric disease because you know, I don't know what the depressed graph looks like, but... Or whatever it's worth, behavioral manifestation of depression can also be alleviated with anesthetics. Right? If you anesthetize a rat with some anesthetics, not with others, specifically the ones that produce birth suppression, you can alleviate some depression symptoms, and it also lasts a while. You take a drug like uh, ketamine. So ketamine, you know, if I gave you a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine, you would feel a little bit altered, a little bit kind of dissociated, it would feel a little bit abnormal. But then an hour after the infusion is over, you'd be back to your normal self, and there's been literally no ketamine or its active metabolites in your body, but uh, the antidepressant effects last a week or two. Okay? 
Uh, with psilocybin, again, it, it seems to be, to be true. I don't know. You know, I, I am not involved in that work, but it seems like you know, months out, depression is bad, right? So again, there is some sort of a perturbation that the drug produces for brain activity, and then that perturbation leaves a lasting impact on the brain. So what do we know about that? So, uh, and this has been studied a fair bit in uh, conventional psychedelics, but also with ketamine, which I guess you shouldn't consider a psychedelic, but let's just put it in that broad category. Is it after a single dose of these drugs, you see that there are more synapses, more, you, you literally can see now with modern microscopy, uh, dendritic spines, which are sort of anatomical counterparts of synapses, and you see that there are more of them, and this increase lasts a while. So it provides some kind of a correlate, at least, maybe of these long-lasting effects. But you know, most plasticity in the brain depends on brain activity, okay? So it's the firing of neurons, the activity of neurons that, dri that is the driver for changes in synapses, right? Ultimately, because it has to come from within the brain. So it is of interest to know what sort of activity does ketamine produce, right? And we knew some things about that. Like, for instance, if you look at EEG of uh, a person on ketamine, say, sub-anesthetic ketamine, well, you see that... Uh, you know, it's not like anesthesia, it's active, active, active EG. If you look at the total number of neurons that are firing, say in the cortex, unlike anesthetics that depress it, ketamine leaves it more or less unchanged. Uh, but what was uh, really less clear is, well, which neurons are these? Right? Which neurons are firing? Right? And that is really, really hard to answer without being able to look. Right. So with electrodes, we can just sort of hear the electrical impulses, and there are some tricks to try to say who is making the action potential. But it's not perfect because if a neuron is silent, it's not firing, you don't see it with your electrode. But uh, uh, with microscopy, you can. You can sort of in an unbiased way look at a field of neurons and force them to express some sort of calcium indicator and say, well, okay, well, this is your brain awake, and well, that's your brain in So what's the difference? So that's actually why we, uh, we did the work, and by we, I really mostly mean Josie Sean, who did just all, all of this, basically. He's a good friend and collaborator. So what Joe did is simply looked at who was firing. And like the original EEG uh, work, we confirmed that, yeah, EEG is activated in mice, and uh, Behaviorally, they're a little bit altered. They don't uh, uh, act normally, but they're not under anesthesia. They can still move, okay? But when we look at uh, neurons firing, we also see well about the same number of neurons firing. But, but the funny, interesting bit was it was a totally different set of neurons. So neurons that were firing normally when the mouse was just sitting there away were depressed by ketamine. And a whole new set of neurons that were sort of silent normally became active. And remarkably, this kind of business happened no matter where we looked in the cortex, to various degrees. You know, some were much more robust than others, but to a good approximation, it doesn't matter if we're looking in the sensory cortex or we're looking in some more sort of complex association, higher order cortex. Yeah, they switch. 
doesn't matter whether we look at superficial cortical layers or deeper cortical layers, there is this switch in activity. Okay, and that was true for what are called pyramidal neurons, so the excitatory uh, neurons in the cortex. It's much more complicated within the cortex. So, so basically, using some modern technology, you can give a mouse ketamine. You can yes. literally point a microscope at its brain, at its cerebral cortex, and you can watch whether the neurons are becoming more active or less active. And what you're saying is when you give them ketamine, where it's it's obviously having effects, but it's not having anesthetic effects, the, the mouse is awake and everything. No, Basically, no matter where you look in the brain, sensory cortex, association cortex, anywhere you look, what you generally find is that some neurons are active and some neurons are inactive, but it's separate populations compared to when the animal's not under the influence of ketamine. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it was kind of striking. It took took a little bit of uh, really looking at the data to appreciate this. But, you know, imagine you're looking with a microscope and you see 10 neurons, okay? And let's say for the sake of argument, neurons 1 through 5 are active. Normally, mouse is just sitting there doing whatever mice do. Uh, 1 through 5 are active and uh, 6 to 10 are sort of silent. And then you give this mouse ketamine, and you see now one through five are silent, but six to ten are active. That, that's, that's really what is going on. And it's interesting, for instance, you, you might say, well, it's random, right? You know, maybe if you come in today and you see five neurons that were activated by ketamine and five neurons that were suppressed, but if you do it tomorrow, it's going to be different five. But it's the same. Or well, not hmm. exactly the same, but it's correlated from day to day. So if ketamine activated a particular neuron on Monday, it has a propensity to activate it on Tuesday, and if it inhibited, it has a propensity to inhibit it on Tuesday. Also, nothing is perfect in biology, but there was a pretty significant correlation between several days of exposure. So, right, so right, that, that, that's kind of the major find here. And what? Um... Are you guys working on anything now? Like, what what are the sort of, the, sort of the the big unknown questions that are being pursued with respect to what ketamine is doing in the brain? So, what I would love to know about ketamine is this: is that like, okay, so it, it's kind of interesting. Maybe it is poetic to say that when you're in this kind of a dissociated state, it's sort of a different network of neurons that is activated. But what I am much more interested in, well, I think that's interesting. But what I'm uh, very interested in is saying, what are the long-term consequences of this? Like, yeah, we know that after ketamine, there are more synapses, but where are the synapses? Right? How does this change in activity that the brain uh, uh, produces after ketamine, how does it lead to longer-term changes? Because I think if you could understand that, or well, maybe you can understand why is it that ketamine has this good antidepressant, maybe anti-drug addiction, anxiety, whatever properties, right? And it, it seems like it's not unique. Uh, uh, nitrous oxide, for instance, another anesthetic, which we did not really talk about, also seems to have less durable, but much more durable than nitrous itself. You can breathe it out in literally a couple of minutes because the metabolites, but its effects on psychiatric conditions, and those are less well-established, and the ketamine lasts a, way, a while, a day or so, right? If it's a cyber and LSD, it seems to be weeks to months, right? So 
it seems to be a common motif amongst many drugs that don't keep perturbation elicit small term changes. And I think if you can understand the connection between the acute effect and the long term effect, this can be really sort of foundation of our understanding of mental health and how to treat it and who will benefit from this treatment, who will not, things of that nature. So that's that's kind of where I would like to and, you know, some of these dissociatives that you mentioned, you know, like ketamine and nitrous oxide, they are also used recreationally. Yes. Um, you know, assuming assuming that you're talking about a, a pure drug, and, and that's a pretty big assumption, I think, when you're talking about recreational use, do these things have any overdose potential or any uh, neurotoxicity or anything like that? So, uh, well, so, yeah, of course, I mean... Uh, and, and really, this is this is a huge problem, right? Because you, you definitely don't want to, you know, we all know about the opioid epidemic, you know. Uh, I, I personally do not want to give a, a drug to somebody that's going to get hurt, right? Be that, you know, ruin their life because of drug addiction or overdose. So that's a real concern. Now, nitrous can be quite dangerous because uh, to get an effect of nitrous, you have to breathe a lot of it. So there's a danger of asphyxiation, right? If you're not uh, breathing enough oxygen, essentially, all your breathing is nitrous, well, you can become hypoxemic, you know, and pass out, die, you know, all sorts of things can happen. Uh, I think it's fairly rare, luckily, that this happens, but it certainly can. Now, ketamine... I think it has a less of a danger of uh, really getting somebody hurt in, in that way. Like you're kind of unlikely to die from ketamine itself. It can raise blood pressure and heart rate and all that kind of stuff. But for for a healthy person, it's not particularly extreme. But you know, if you have somebody with coronary artery disease or something like that, and they took a lot of it, yeah, they could suffer serious consequences. The problem with ketamine is that people then uh, do things on ketamine and get hurt because of the things that they're doing. Now, that's definitely true. There's no emergency in that world. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real issue. And this is an issue, you know, if it turns out to be the case that you cannot disentangle this dissociated state or a psychedelic state from the therapeutic uh, effect of these drugs, then what are we as society going to do? Are we going to say, well, you know, we will give them out to people? Uh, are we going to give uh, give these drugs in very controlled settings? Um, what is going to be the approach? I don't think it's, it's simple at all. And it's especially hard, I think, for psychedelics because ketamine is at least a clinically used drug, right? You know, I don't have to go to the DEA to give somebody ketamine. It's a controlled substance, but it has medicinal use. With drugs like psilocybin and LSD, it seems like people are working and trying to get them approved, but currently they have no medicinal potential, right? They're Schedule one drugs in the United States. So even studying them in the lab on animals, you have to do a lot of paperwork. Uh, so I don't think it's I don't think it's set up issue at all whether these drugs will Will work, but I think understanding the mechanisms of how they work, you know, maybe in the future you can make a drug that 
It will not be those things. But again, we don't even really know if that's possible. We don't know if non-hallucinogenic LSD analog is A, non-hallucinogenic in people, and B, therapeutic in people. It's very early days. It's not clear. One of the things um, I ask scientists sometimes is, you know, what are some really exciting areas of science that you're following that don't have anything directly to do with your own research? Mm, that's a really good one. I tend yeah, if to you... kind of very, uh, I am interested in lots of things. So um, I've been reading a lot about AI, actually. Uh, it's, and and I, I did a little bit of work on AI, actually analyzing AI dynamics and AI, but that kind of forced me to really think about the deeper issues in AI, like, you know, we've all seen some of the amazing things that the engineers built, you know, chat GPT is pretty spectacular. I think nobody will ever write a term paper again, uh, you know. Uh, uh, but, you know, and you start wondering maybe kind of similar questions like, well, uh, definitely chat GPT with pass the Turing test. If you didn't know, are you familiar with the Turing test? Yes, yes. Uh, why, don't, why don't you just explain it for people, um, as yeah. well as ChatGPT for those who have not used it yet? Right. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, a Turing test is an idea that's proposed by Alan Turing, and it had to do with, well, how do you know if a machine is intelligent? And what Turing said is that, well, if you're interacting with this machine, and you believe that you're interacting with an intelligent being, well, then it is, right? And, well... For certain, uh, ChatGPT is a natural language processing software uh, that has recently been released to the public that, well, as far as I can tell, can answer any question you want. For instance, I've asked it to compose me a sonnet uh, that will tell me how to make a chocolate cake. (laughs) Right? So it doesn't just rehash things that are on the internet. It, uh, it's not like a Siri that can turn on and off your notifications. You can have an interaction with it. And I think if you did not know you were talking to some very sophisticated AI network, you would be convinced that you are talking to somebody who's intelligent. Right? So it can pass the Turing test. But, you know, at some point you have to begin to wonder, like, well, are these things actually intelligent? And if you begin to wonder that, you have to wonder, well, what would it take for them to be truly intelligent? I don't, I don't think I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Uh, uh, but you know, uh, it's an interesting question. You know, maybe if you can understand how you can engineer a thing to be truly intelligent, and what I mean by that is to be able to generalize. You know, it is there is no doubt that you can. It's been demonstrated now, but I, I think for any one specific task, you can train. An AI system that will beat a human. There's no no question about that. Uh, but uh, the bigger question is: Can you have learning and understanding in the way that we as humans do? You know, if you think about the child learning how to speak, for instance, it happens remarkably quickly, and they can generalize from the few ideas that they know and ask questions about other things and be inquisitive curious and interact real time with the world. So, well, maybe the way of understanding how the brain does this is for the engineer system that does something, something similar, you know. And yes, of course, brains are not like 
computer code or anything of that nature, but maybe at a more abstract level, if you could you know, sort of distill down what is necessary for such a, a truly intelligent system, you can begin to make headway into at least what are you looking for. So yeah, so that's been my kind of recent foray into the unknown. Yeah, and for those listening, if you haven't tried ChatGPT, it's free to use. Uh, everyone's yeah. using it, it seems, and uh, it's it's quite remarkable. So if you haven't played with it, uh, go to OpenAI's website and, and try it out. Uh, but, Professor Alex Proct, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we covered a lot of interesting ground that people will find uh, really interesting. Are, any final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you want to reiterate from from what we spoke about? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think um, neuroscience is kind of a really exciting field. I think it attracts people from all sorts of walks of life, people who I think everybody should be curious about the brain. It is what makes us who we are. And, uh, you know, there are many ways to address this question. You can be a biologist, you can be a computer scientist, a physicist, or a mathematician, uh, anybody else. So, uh, well, uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, people are interested in these issues, and uh, I hope uh, the field continues to grow. We'll be better off. For it.